Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. Good afternoon and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Daniel Robison, filling in for Herald Times editor Bob Zaltzberg. Today I'm joined by co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael and we'll be discussing rural health care in Indiana. We're joined in the studio by four guests today. Jim Turner is the medical director of the Richard Luger Center for Rural Health. Doug Falber is the assistant administrator at Union Clinton Hospital. And we also have two second-year medical students, Julia Fries and John Wheat. Thank you all for making it and welcome to the program. Thank you. I bet it sounded pretty good to hear second year after that first year, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, our phone lines are open if you'd like to call us up and join the conversation by asking a question or making a comment. We're here at one eight seven seven two eight five wfiu or there's always our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, first of all, I want to get a, a working definition of what rural health is. What's it? What's different about it from good old regular health that people talk about? <laughs> One thing to talk about, Daniel, is that uh, over half the counties in Indiana are underserved, and two thirds of the counties in Indiana are actually rural. So we're really struggling to get uh, healthcare providers back into rural areas. Indiana University had not had a program previously to address that. Uh, we were able to get a program started with the help of the Luger Center and at IU School of Medicine in Terre Haute to develop their first rural training program. And the two students you have here today are in the third class or second class of that program. To date, we have a total of 35 students now that are enrolled in this rural program. And they're traditionally, as they will tell you, from that type of a background, small town background, uh, are matriculating through the school in Terre Haute. And then we hope eventually we'll return to uh, rural Indiana to practice to help battle some of the shortages. And the shortages aren't just in physicians. It's all across the board. And it's in one opportunity, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. There are going to be growth and job opportunities in nursing, physical mm-hmm. therapy, nutrition, rehab medicine. So the healthcare industries, as far as career choices, are wide open. But most of those professions still depend on the physician to direct that care, whether it's nursing home care, hospice, what the physical therapist does. So the foundation of that rural medicine program is the young people you see in the room today. Dr. Turner, I want to thank you for coming back. You were with us recently. We had a different topic that day. And I should tell our listeners that it was after the program that we started discussing this and decided, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, that's another whole program that, that we want to learn about. So thank you for coming back and being with us. Uh, my pleasure. It's, and it's so exciting to be joined by our now second-year medical students. I would love to hear, maybe, John, if you don't mind starting, telling us about how you heard about this and why it's of interest to you, maybe a little bit about your background. Tell us where you're from. Start with that. Um, I'm from uh, a town of about 300 people, uh, Shepherdsville, Indiana. Actually, and where's that? Uh, Vermilion County, okay. Indiana. And Well, I, actually, Shepherdsville is on the border of Vigo County, but at any mm-hmm. rate. Um, yeah, uh, I had been interested in medicine basically my entire life and uh, uh, embarked on a career as a musician at 12, got sidetracked for about 20 years <laughs> actually. <laughs> and uh, when I turned 30, I thought, you know, I, uh, I'm interested in pursuing medicine at this point. We'll see, we'll see if this is a possibility. And being in the Terre Haute area, uh, of course, ISU, Indiana State University is located there and they're affiliated with with IU and uh, found out about their pre-medical education program and some of the opportunities for that. And uh, at 30, I went back to college and uh, was in college for basically 10 years (laughs) and did pretty much two degrees Then applied to to IU and and quite thankfully was accepted. And and, uh, I am from, again, a rural area. when I was 18, I moved to L.A. Uh, and played music in some of the major urban areas for several years and decided that although those were, were nice places to visit, uh, 
I'm, I am a rural and I want to return to those roots and, and, and practice medicine. So the rural medicine program, actually, I had already been accepted to IU before, before I was completely aware of, of the opportunities with rural medicine and uh, did a secondary application to that program and was accepted. And uh, it's a good match for me. You know, I, I certainly can say, although I can't verify what specialization at this point I'll, I'll go into or whether or not it'll be primary care. It will definitely be a rural practice. There's, mm-hmm. there, there's a great need for rural surgeons also. That's not uh, not as addressed as often as of yet, um, but uh, it's a great program and I'm, I'm really, really thankful to be a part of it. Now, is there any financial advantage to you to being a part of the rural medicine program as opposed to just going through medical school like the majority of people do? Well, there are several scholarships that are that are offered uh, both by the state and and private organizations that that offer uh, tuition reimbursement, for example, um, for for folks who uh, are interested in primary care in a rural environment. To point, and I my understanding of it is it, it's mainly been because of the the specialist organizations have not lobbied for for this yet, but to point, it's only available. Uh, to folks interested in in primary care specialties, mm-hmm. which which includes uh, internal medicine, uh, med peds, uh, psychiatry, so it's it's fairly wide. Um, there are also some things through uh, the National Health Service um, that will will reimburse in retrospect if you do decide to go into one of those areas of specialization. So I've, I've kept my options open a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Julia probably could speak more to uh, the rural scholarships that are in place. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. it's early on in your medical training, so I can see why you'd want to experience a little bit more before you had decided exactly what yes, it was ma'am. you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Sure, that makes sense. How is the uh, the training different for, to become a rural physician uh, you know, than, than a regular old physician? Um, well, we're in a small town, I mean smaller area to begin with, and then the Terre Haute area offers um, some areas, surrounding areas that we can venture out to and experience more of that small town clinic that offers everything at it, including the lab results and um, sometimes even a small ER is available there. So like um, this summer, I'm doing the rural preceptorship, so in that program I'll go out to Clinton for two weeks and see what goes on there in the rural area. And then another area is Sullivan, Indiana, which mm-hmm. is south of Terre Haute. And they have a community hospital there that I'll be able to get experience at for two weeks. So you guys are more cross-trained in a lot of different things. You have to play many different roles in a, in a rural uh, setting? Well, um, at Terre Haute, all the students, we have non, we have traditional students and rural students there. And the the rural students, we have preceptors once a week during the school year, and we go out to different areas and to those, these small town clinics. And then the traditional students more stay in in the city and maybe just stay with a specialist. specialist. Mm-hmm. Now, Doug, I wanted to ask you this question. Are rural clinics sort of inherently at a disadvantage over a regular urban clinic? Do they, are there less services provided? Do people have to play many different roles? Well, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, actually in the rural clinics, we have the uh, technology that they can go out and use telemedicine to make contacts for either patient assessments or actually cons- consult with specialists that are, say, located in Indianapolis or Terre Haute. Um, in the rural clinic, from, from the hospital's perspective, they are our feeder source for patients. And, of course, we're in the business of health care. And they may take care of a patient from cradle to the grave. Uh, the, um, it's not unusual for the rural physician to do the delivery and then do the immunizations and, and all the way up to the chronic illness stage of, of the elderly and maintain that close personal relationship. When a specialist is needed, uh, they have contacts to get that patient to the specialist with the understanding that once that specialized care, say cardiology, is taken care of, the follow-up care will be done by the hometown doctor. Mm-hmm. You brought up telemedicine. This is something I was reading a bit about before the show. And What is that concept? Uh, is that where someone sits in front of a camera and speaks to someone on the other end of another camera? Absolutely. It, it's like being on TV. Uh, we were uh, fortunate 
and with the help of the Luger Center to become a, a pilot for telemedicine for psychiatry. In the rural setting, as John mentioned, um, you know, the availability of, of behavioral health services is very limited, especially over holidays, weekends, uh, and during the night. And that's when a lot of the psychiatric uh, behavioral health issues come to, to fruition. So with the advent of the telemedicine, we were able to reduce the length of stay in our facility waiting for that special care. They can go on the TV while they're still in the emergency room if appropriate or say the day after in the uh, ICU. They get on, they meet their therapist, they have that assessment and a plan of disposition is made at that time. So that's better for both our facility, it's better for the patient because they know what to expect and then when they go down uh, to meet their their therapist, they've already established that relationship. It's been a win-win for everyone. Mm-hmm. Before we get to our first email uh, question here, uh, I just want to ask: Are there what are sort of the the, the drawbacks to telemedicine? Do some people prefer it, or do some people think I don't want to talk to a camera? I want to actually see somebody face to face. Well, um, I guess I'll take that one. We've. Um, Run satisfaction surveys, if you will. Uh, that seems to be the buzz in the in the industry now. Sure. And both the staff and the patients actually enjoy that. Um, people say, "Well, I've been on TV," you know, and they have. Um, it's transmitted in a totally secure uh, networking environment. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they get to meet the person firsthand visually as well as as vocally, um, and so they're able to have that rapport established. And we've expanded it up at uh, uh, Union Hospital Clinton to include telecardiology. Nice. And just real brief because I don't want to take their, their thunder, but <laughs> telecardiology, we have a lot of people come in for atypical chest pain. Uh, we're not sure. We don't want to send them home. We don't want to lifeline them. So telecardiology uh, helps the cardiologist stay in his office, review the EKGs, the lab work, interview the patient. We even have the stethoscope that you can listen uh, to the heart sounds, to the breath sounds. They can make a determination of whether that patient needs invasive procedures followed medically follow-up appointment mm-hmm. and the like. So, and again, it's just been a marvelous um, invention, if you will. Right, and you're not left cooling your heels for a couple of days until staff is back in the hospital. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yes. Do you want me to do this email, sure. Daniel? Yes. Okay, here's an email that came in. And, John, this is um, directed to you. They, this uh, emailer wants to know if you're going to keep a banjo and a mandolin in your office or a clinic. <laughs> Maybe it, 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 this speaks to holistic <laughs> approach to medicine. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I'd like to know who that caller is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things – when I turned 30, I saw a movie uh, which got terrible reviews but uh, it was called Patch Adams. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of corny but uh, that that reawakened a lot of my, my interest in, in the practice of medicine. And I, I do have some ideas when, when I do open an office. I think there are a lot of things that can be incorporated that are generally not um, that uh, I think could increase the quality of life for mm-hmm. patients that don't exactly uh, need to have prescriptions written for. Uh, banjo and mandolin, definitely. A few guitars. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, John, you said, you said you're from a rural area. Do you think that mm-hmm. gives you an inherent advantage? or Do, do, you, th- do you see, and this is also for you too, uh, Jim, uh, do you see that most people go into rural medicine and they're, they're, they are from a rural area? Do you, do you don't see too many people mm-hmm. jumping from urban to rural? Is that the case? Well, I think studies have shown that time and time again when you look at uh, the demographics. Um, I practice in my hometown. You know, I, I actually – my office is three blocks from where I grew up. And I, so I've been around a little bit but actually came back home. My wife's from the same hometown. Um, my rural roots, I claim that I married the county fair queen. That's how I – that's my rural strength there. Um, so we've, we've kind of found that. They're more comfortable there. You really can't take a, an urban student and put them in rural areas or vice versa very well. The point of this whole program really was that we had these students out here who wanted to do that, but we really didn't have an organized pathway and pipeline for them to work their way through medical school because they're, 
their needs are somewhat different. When they're coming from small high schools, I think Julia's class was 30 or 40, Julia? Oh, 84. 84 in her graduating class. She doesn't have some of the same opportunities, and I didn't either, uh, from a high school class of 100. Um, so we've kind of created that pipeline and that pathway to get them back to where they wanted to come from. Mm-hmm. So really, you're more comfortable there. People are comfortable with you. Um, and that's why I really developed the program. Julia, I want to get your story in just a minute. But before that, let's talk a little about – you shared some um, data with us prior to the show and I, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, we're really – in looking ahead, we're in dire straits sure. as far as um, the – just the manpower that we need to care for each other. Could you speak to that a little bit? There are several issues. The federal government recognized over five years ago that we were not going to have nearly enough physicians, encourage medical schools nationwide to increase their enrollment by about 30 percent. And IU responded to that. The challenge IU's had is the whole state has had. As you may know, there was talks of a $60 million cutback to the university and that, that those cutback dollars worked their way down to the medical school. And even up to a few months ago, there was concern they were going to cut the medical school admission class by 40 to 50 students. They've changed their mind. They're going to go back to their usual enrollment just really within the last few weeks. Um, But when we look nationwide, the American Academy of Family Physicians says that we're going to be short 40,000 family physicians within within 10 years. Um, Wow. And it's not just the access to health care that drives some of this program. As, as we mentioned before, the economic impact of having a health care system in your community and a doctor's office touches many, many people. And studies show that the average family physician brings 23 jobs to a community and a payroll of $1.5 million per year uh, because they, without them, there would not be a nursing home or maybe a new pharmacy or hospice could not come and function or home health, and pl- let alone your office staff. So for the students that we have in our program now, you could extrapolate for the state of Indiana – you know, within 10 years, we're going to put 50 or $60 million back into rural Indiana just on their backs, on their work efforts, and bringing with them those other health care workers to, to help stimulate the economy. In many rural counties, health care is the one or two employer in that county. And mm-hmm. in uh, Vermillion County, where uh, Doug's Hospital is, the school district is number one, the hospital is the number two employer. So it's, it's not just the altruistic idea of taking care of rural folks. There's an economic impact to it. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at – and Julie can address about the, her scholarship program. When you look at the investment that the taxpayers make in her program as an example, and I just looked at the data this week before I came, the average debt leaving Indiana University School of Medicine is $240,000. Wow, that is daunting. That's the average debt. Now, if you can help a student with a, with a tuition forgiveness program and say it does cost you – $150,000 when that's all done, their first year in practice, they'll put $1.5 million back into the community. So that's a 10 to 1 investment in one year. So I'll let her address that. Pretty good return. Yes, uh, in many ways. Yeah. In many ways. Oh, those are fascinating numbers. And you shared um, a, a website. I, I believe some of this information was available. If people want to look at the website, and, and I, there's a fabulous map that I just found so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, where could our listeners go and, and get a little more background information? Well, they could Google up the Richard G. Luger Center for mm-hmm. Rural Health, and that will give you all the links to take you through all those and all of our programs. That's great. Thank you. Well, I wanted to get to our first phone caller. We have Valerie on the line. Valerie, are you there? Um, yeah, I've heard now two or three references to this Luger Center, and no one has yet explained what that is. If you could please, I know when I contacted Senator Luger uh, regarding health care reform, he thought it was uh, frivolous spending and that there were other approaches, so I assume this may be another approach. I'd like to hear what this Luger Center is that you keep referring to. Thank you. Thanks, Valerie. Thank you. Uh, I'll be happy to. In uh, Terre Haute, we had a center that was initially called the Midwest Center for Rural Health. And it was a program to help do what we're doing now, um, develop rural clinics, bring rural students in, uh, improving health care in rural areas. And that program had functioned for about 10 years. We had a small staff. Um, we were able to build a building in a complex, which is part of the medical school that these students here are going to, part of their classroom thing. And as part of that program, Senator Luger was helpful in getting federal dollars to help build that medical complex uh, and teaching facility. Uh, Several folks wondered if it would be reasonable to approach Senator Luger to see if we could name the complex after him in honor of what he had done for us, and he was most uh, happy to do that. So about four years ago, we came to Tarot and we had a ceremony. We now went from the Midwest Center to the Richard G. Luger Center for Rural Health. 
We're really a part of Union Hospital, but we function as an education and innovation center, grant writing, public policy, rural education, telemedicine programs. It's a wide variety of things, but we're not politically connected to the senator in any way. Or um, He has another center named in his honor, I believe, at, at Purdue University about energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're not affiliated in any way politically or any, anything like that. We just are honored to have his name with us and his uh, support. Mm-hmm. So let me just clarify something. Union Hospital then, is that considered a teaching hospital? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, they have the uh, family practice residency program. Uh, we affiliate with uh, Indiana State University School of Nursing, Occupational Physical Therapy, um, Purdue and Ball State Pharmacy. Students from all over uh, come and do their clinical practice there. Wow, that's really – I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And we also up at uh, Union Clinton, which is roughly 13 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a satellite in Clinton yes. of, of the bigger Union Hospital that's in Terre Haute? Yes, ma'am. Okay, go mm-hmm. ahead. Um, we'll have students up there. As a matter of fact, uh, John in his former life uh, uh, did some work with me uh, in a management perspective. Uh, so we see students from the Ivy Tech Community College. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the OTs, PTs uh, cycle through. Uh, because we have a booming outpatient business and uh, a lot of follow-up uh, care there. Excellent. How many lives have you had, John? I'm just curious. <laughs> Are you on about your fourth reincarnation? Well, I was going to say you'll yeah. have to hypnotize me. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely sure. Something like that. I think. <laughs> uh, before we take a break, I wanted to ask, uh, we have two students in here today. What are recruitment efforts like? Is it mm-hmm. is it a challenge to convince a student to pursue rural health? Do you have to go out and find them or do they find you? Um, well, I was drawn to the Terre Haute um, rural center because like I'm from a rural area and I went like I had the support system of a small community in high school where I knew all my teachers first name basis and just really that I knew they really um, valued my education and then I went to a small um, private college too for undergrad Mm -hmm. so and then the there's 24 students at the Terre Haute campus and that's really what drew me there was that I knew that I'd be able to get to know them and they'd watch out for me because let's face it, medical school is very hard. And um, so I needed all the support I could get. And then far as the recruitment with the primary care scholarship, that it's a four-year commitment after you graduate from your residency program. And you're basically committing to four years to practice in a, medi- or in a medically underserved area in Indiana. In primary care. In primary care, mm-hmm. right. Uh, Jim? So, one of the reasons we really want to be on a program today, Daniel, was to get the word out more. And we actually have a, a part of our pipeline we've uh, alluded to before really starts in junior high. And there are what's called AHECs, Area Health Education Centers around the state of Indiana that um, try to promote health professions, like I say, all the way from junior high, summer camps, and working the way through. We have a program um, at Indiana State that's now about 12 years old called a BMD program. The way that program works is I'm on the committee. We interview high school seniors who are interested in health care. They have to have a 1,200 uh, ACT and a 3.5 grade point, so it's an academically challenging. We interview them. We just did this a few weeks ago and took about 12 students. Um, those students come to Indiana State University in a pre-med curriculum. They pay no tuition. If they maintain a uh, 3.5 or higher grade point average and have a competitive score on their MCAT exam, they're accepted in the IU School of Medicine in Terre Haute. It's another pathway. Of that program, um, now we've had about 32 students who have actually come through that pathway, have gone through Indiana State, um, through this BMD program, and now currently in medical school. So it's functioning well. And, and as we talked about debt, so you could theoretically go to college for no tuition. If you go to medical school and you want to go to a rural or underserved area, as Julia's doing, you could take an Indiana primary care scholarship um, and really, if you go back to that underserved area, you will eventually have all your tuition forgiven. The other thing that John mentioned briefly, there's the National Health Service Corps. That's been around since the 70s. It was initially instituted primarily to get physicians to go to Indian reservations, mm-hmm. and it was a tuition forgiveness basically to do that. The, the new health care bill puts an extra $4 billion into the National Health Service Corps. It's exploded. The process has become much easier. And what happens with that is if you return to an underserved area, and it's kind of unusual. Actually, in, in Chicago, there are 300 centers where you can go. It doesn't have to be rural. It can be urban underserved. Um, 
if you go to one of those places, you can get as much as $145,000 in loan repayment if you stay for four years. So there are some opportunities out there. And again, the taxpayers may think, gosh, we're paying $145,000 for loan forgiveness. Look what you get on the other end. Mm -hmm. Um, The taxes that those people then create jobs for, you get the money back. Within months. Yeah. In in reality. So there are some opportunities and we head the students in those directions to help those out. And we try to – and we're talking medical school burden. Mm -hmm. Picture a private school as Julia went to. Picture Mm -hmm. going to Notre Dame or something like that and have that undergraduate debt on top of that. Um, So it can easily be over $300,000 or $350,000, which is daunting. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have not seen your first patient yet. You're three hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt. You do not have a home. You, you maybe you have a child. Um, you're at that point of your life where you're wanting to do some things, and before you see your first patient, you're three hundred fifty thousand dollars in yeah, that's debt. That's really discouraging. So it's a challenge. Yeah, mm-hmm. and primary care in general um, tends to be a lower pay scale than the specialties, also. So it's another advantage to get people into the primary care field. Mm-hmm. Well, I, t- I do want to talk more about that, and I also want to talk more about the how new health insurance laws are going to affect rural health. But we're going to have to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute with more Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today, we're discussing rural health care in Indiana. We're joined in the studio by Jim Turner. He's the medical director of the Richard Luger Center for Rural Health in Terre Haute. Doug Falber is the assistant administrator at Union Clinton Hospital. And we also have two second-year medical students, Julia Fries and John Wheat. And I want to start the second half of the program off by hearing more about uh, Julia's story. How did you get involved in uh, rural medicine? Well, I'm from northern Indiana. It's about five minutes from Michigan in a small town called Shipshawana, Indiana. We have about 500 people live up there. And then it's a tourist area, too. Um, There's a very large Amish population, Mennonite community. And um, the community just means a lot to me. Um, There are a lot of hard workers and really care about giving back to um, each other and to the community. And as far as what I didn't really know for sure I wanted to do medicine until later on in college. Just like I've had really good experience with my family care physician in a nearby community. And I really thought that, you know, all small town communities deserve to have a really good doctor that cares about them genuinely and wants to put their needs above their own. And I think that's just what really led me to want to go back to an area like that or nearby up there. And um, like I said, just the small town atmosphere of the community in Terre Haute and the one-on-one interaction you get with teachers and all the opportunities we have, it just really led me to go down there. Do you feel a great sense of responsibility as um, one of the, the students at the Luger Center? Yeah, I, I think I do. I really um, feel like we, we're giving a lot of opportunities to grow and a good education, and we're able to, we can then give that back to where we came from. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the numbers and the fact that you may actually be the main reason for one of the leading employers in mm-hmm. your uh, or employment sectors in your com- community, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, yes. very exciting. Very exciting. Well, I forgot to give the phone numbers off oh. the bat, so I'll go ahead and do that again. If you'd like to call us up and make a comment or uh, ask us a question, it's one eight seven seven two eight five. WFIU. Well, we brought up right before the break uh, the pay scale of a, of a rural uh, health doctor. It's uh, it's lower than uh, than an urban center suburban uh, doctor. Does that keep some students away? You think? I think the fear of debt does that. I think if we can uh, mm-hmm. continue the programs that we have and they've been funded, you know, more appropriately, if we can excuse a lot of that debt. Uh, I think people will stay in primary care in, in rural areas because obviously your cost of living is much cheaper. So there's some advantages to that too. But um, but I think if we can get their debt out of the way in a reasonable fashion, we'll, we'll do okay. We've had a great email that um, has come in. Uh, it says, the life of a rural doctor sounds very iconic. But is that true? Could you walk us through a day in the life of a rural doctor? And Dr. Turner, I think you'd be the ideal candidate for this since you've actually <laughs> lived that life for many years now. I'm still living it. Yeah. Um, for the first 16 years in practice, I've been in practice 20, I delivered babies. And my office was 22 miles from the closest hospital. So you can imagine what that was like in the winter and so forth uh-huh. when you'd have a an office full of people with the flu in January and you have somebody who's in labor 22 miles away. Fortunately, at our teaching hospital with our residency, I knew there was a resident assigned to OB and was standing next to my patient all the time I was 22 miles away. But once in a while, we would still miss a delivery. We did pretty much everything at that time. We have a a nursing home adjacent to our clinic, 120-bed nursing home, so we cared for the elderly in our community. Had a hospital practice. So if we admitted patients to the hospital, say we'd see somebody in the morning with pneumonia, put them in the hospital, we would continue to follow them, see them each day, um, take care of their needs and so forth. We did – so basically total from birth to death, as Doug mentioned, uh, taking care of people all the way through. Got involved in community activities. You know, I was a team physician for the football team when my son played uh, especially. We just worked in the community just yesterday to get us an athletic training program for the first time in our small town. We've never had before. Indiana State's going to send us one, you know, small high school uh, now to have an athletic trainer. Um, I've served on different foundations in the community. The rural physicians really can be a leader in the community and people look to you for that role. Time becomes a challenge, Uh, you know, four children and uh, fortunately a a wife who supported me for 31 years. that's what it really takes because it's, it can be very, very time-consuming because people call you at home, people call you at night, someone's on call 24-7. Fortunately, I have good partners and good colleagues and we work out call schedules and, and you can have a good quality life but you have to work hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very satisfying at the end. Now, you mentioned something that made me think of something else. You mentioned that you um, delivered babies and I know that in the state of Indiana – um, well, not just here, all across the country. A lot of people have gotten away from OB because of the insurance costs. Um, is there any kind of special allowances or situations that are going to be made um, for our new young rural doctors so that's not prohibitive for them? Not really. And um, that one of the challenges, though, that we assess patients when they first come and decide, is this potentially a higher-risk pregnancy? And if I saw that right at that time, I would transfer them to an obstetrician. I wouldn't really go any farther. I would see patients and interview them and get their medical history if it was complicated. If it was the patient was diabetic, as an example, I'd say, really, you need to have an obstetrician to do that. And we'll be happy to take care of your baby here afterwards, but you really need a different level of care. So that, that um, screening procedure really helped quite a bit. The OB part is just very difficult time-wise. And, that, and that's mm-hmm. why it's driven a lot of people away. Someone may go to labor at 7 o'clock in the morning. And for those of you mothers out there that are listening, you know how it can be a 20-hour thing. And for that physician, you're on their mind that whole 20 hours. And so though you have patients in the office, you're going to your child's school play, to their ball game. You're carrying your page or knowing that there's somebody that you're responsible for, two lives you're responsible for. Uh, and you may be 20 miles away trying to have another part of your life and, and it may end up, may end up 3 o'clock in the morning and then you go home and take a shower and go back to work the next day. So it's, it's, it's challenging in that way. It sounds exhausting to tell you the truth. Uh, like today, how, do you, uh, how far ahead do you have to schedule to get to spend time with us and, and be away from your community? Well, a couple weeks really. Mm-hmm. And, but I have good colleagues and we can do that and, um, and people are understanding. But scheduling is a, is a challenge you know, to, to work all that out, particularly when you're delivering babies. You, people expect you to be there. You developed a relationship with them. That's what's important. Sure. And uh, I really enjoyed it, but it got to the point that uh, with four children and busier schedules and different, different uh, challenges, I, we still see patients in our office, though, for the first eight months. 
Mm-hmm. And then we'll turn them over for that last month to the obstetrician. They'll do the delivery. So we still are doing prenatal care in our rural clinic. And then we take care of the babies when they come back. Now, if you're, you're doing prenatal through nursing home care, so, I mean, that runs the whole gamut of the human right. experience. What kind of ongoing professional education must you participate in to stay current? I mean, I can't imagine. Well, we're all board certified with the American Board of Family Medicine. And uh, it requires 50 hours a year of medical education. I'm going to a conference actually next week. So we're, and we have to take recertification board exams uh, every seven years. So we have to stay up with it. Wow. Well, earlier we talked about the shortage and you said you've lived 20 miles away from the nearest uh, hospital. Uh, In real terms, what is the shortage and the logistics of it? Has that resulted in problems for some patients? Is that – do some people have to wait a little bit longer to get seen and does that make some conditions worse? Well, that's part of what our challenge is why we're here is that access to health care. And really we do pretty well in the the rural communities. You know, we're fortunate to have a a medical center in our small town – we have x-ray on site. We have a physical therapist on site. We have two pharmacies in town. So really people can access this pretty easily, um, probably easier than you could a specialist and so forth. And so it's, we're not struggling at the moment, but we're one doctor away from struggling. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So w- what kind of efforts – I know you talked about now you're starting um, to try to get the word out to kids as, as young as junior high. Um, tell me a little bit more about how that works. Well, the, the AHEC programs, uh, as we mentioned, uh, primarily they do um, summer workshops. They do fairs where they go into schools, put on science exhibits, science fairs. They may do something like taking some anatomy, uh, like an anatomy professor may go to a, to a junior high and actually take a brain as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have seen some of those type programs. Uh, we also work with guidance counselors in high schools and we're targeting – the spokesperson in local high schools for the National Honor Society. Mm-hmm. Most of these students have been in National Honor Society. And so we look at their sponsors as a possible source. They keep track of those students in your National Honor Society group in your high school and route them to us. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense because it seems like as, as big as the need is, recruitment is just going to be absolutely mandatory for you in order to keep that pipeline full of the number of folks that we need to do this kind of work for us. And in this economy when, you know, jobs are hard to come by, could you emphasize there will be a job for you whenever you get out? Is that part of the draw for you guys? Um, uh, Speaking for myself, coming from a background in music again, (laughs) it's an interesting paradigm. Um, yeah. But I will have to say that uh, speaking for myself and, and the other students that I know and professionals, I don't think anyone enters this profession um, because of things such as job security or reimbursement, which we hear so much about politically. Um, you you do the job because uh, you're called to do the job and you make the best of the situation that surrounds that. So as far as recruitment of young students, I'm not sure that – that middle school students would actually realize the benefit of, of job security at that point. I know when I was in middle school, I was aware of it, but it still hadn't been something I lived with mm-hmm. and understood. But certainly it is a selling factor for health care across the board. Mm-hmm. So. I heard about the program because IU School of Medicine admissions office sent an email to any student that's from a rural area. So and because I'm from LaGrange County, Indiana, very rural area, I received an email and this sparked my interest and then I went ahead and applied for the second application to the rural center. So I think that's where a lot of um, my friends in the rural program heard about it too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before the break, uh, you brought up uh, new health insurance laws and how they will affect rural health. Uh, this course is, is aimed at you, Jim. So how, how will – have you had a chance to read the new laws and, and have you had a chance to sort of figure out what it means for you and for all of rural health? Well, looking at the summaries, not the, the 2,000 pages everyone talks about, but <laughs> um, there's going to be a couple things, Daniel, that's really going to help us in rural areas. There, um, there's an entity known as a community health center or federally qualified health center. Those designations have been around for about 30 years. We have over 200 of those type clinics in Indiana, one in Clinton right now, and we just opened one in Cayuga, Indiana, and Congressman Ellsworth came for that opening about two weeks ago. Um, There's over 1,000 in Illinois, so it's not a new entity. But this new health bill 
puts $11 billion in new community health center development. And what a community health center is, is that it's a federally run program. And we have one in Clinton. Um, physicians are paid. It's a, it's a regular, um, looks like a regular clinic for anybody that walked into it. But you get an increased reimbursement when your patients come in. So as Medicaid struggles in many states, the physician, let's say an average charge for Medicare patient may be around $70 for a visit. Medicaid may pay 20 or 30 But if you're a community health center, you get a $140 reimbursement. So um, because you're, you're traditionally, if you're in a rural or underserved area, your patient mix is going to be tend to be poor and less insured in general. So it's really hard to get health professionals to an area that you know, you're going to get a double whammy and so forth. So community health centers are, are expanding rapidly. Um, the other thing I mentioned earlier with the community, uh, with the National Health Service Corps, that increased funding that's in the new bill is going to make a marked difference, much easier for them to get loan reimbursement um, and much easier process. There's eight-page document compared to 30, and you find out very quickly. So I think those two things, community health centers in the new bill, and a way to get loan forgiveness to serve in those areas is going to help us a great deal. So overall, you think it's it's a good thing for rural health? It is, and it also um, has extra dollars really for what graduate medical education, um, and that's what you know these students here are going through and in our residents and so forth. So they're they're recognizing that you know we need those dollars to teach those professionals. Um, so there's extra money also for medical education. So for rural and education, the health bills. Very good. Mm-hmm. Doug, how do you think your facility will be affected? Well, with the uh, um, health clinic that opened up just next door to our uh, hospital, it has helped reduce the uh, number of people that go to the ER. ER visits are much more expensive than it would be to go to an office clinic. And the nice thing is that these clinics have stair-step uh, payment structures. So anybody can go. But they're really targeting the underinsured or uninsured that they can go and essentially pay a very nominal fee. So it helps reduce those primary care visits to the emergency room, the sore throats, the bronchitis, if you will, which I have. (laughs) And um, uh, they can go to the clinics, be seen by a a physician extender, nurse practitioner or the uh, physician. And then they have access to the labs, radiology, all that stuff that the hospital can provide. So it's been a very uh, positive uh, working relationship that's started up there with uh, in the Vermilion County. We've got about 10 minutes left in the program. If you'd like to squeeze in a question, it's one eight seven seven two eight five 285 wfiu uh, this is a question directed to the, our students here, Julia uh, and John. Uh, medical school is hard. Uh, there's not a lot of, of folks enter into the Richard Luger Center to, to become medical students, but all of them don't graduate. Uh, how, what is the success rate? How many people drop out? Uh, you know, is, uh, are most of them successful? Yeah, um our, out of our first year class, everyone's going to make it on to second year. I mean, we have one student who's going to choose to take a year off just to recuperate, I guess. But um, I think we've all made it. So I think uh, university-wide, the, uh, the rate is around 5%. Um, and most of those 5% uh, choose to uh, discontinue their medical education. They're not per se flunked out. Um, mm-hmm. The the requirements uh, to get into medical school are so rigorous that uh, by the time you get there, number one, the school understands that you're capable of doing the work, and number two, they understand that you're you're willing to. So you don't see a whole lot of people mm-hmm. um, unable to do it, but it is amazingly intense, and, and it is hard work, yes. There's a lot of resources to help us, too. Mm-hmm. If we're struggling, um, there's counseling services back at Indianapolis. We can polycom and... Um, talk to those people. And also, like I mentioned, our teachers really care about us and how we're doing and what's going on in our lives to help us get through whatever we need to get through. Absolutely. I would think with only 35 in your class, that's right, right? Actually, 24 in 24. our class. Oh, oh in your class. Yeah. Okay. I'm, okay. I would think that you guys would have a pretty strong support system among yourselves. Absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, that's a small group. You really have an opportunity to get to know each single Every single mm-hmm. of your classmates yep. and what the- their life is about. And so that should be an ongoing resource then as you start your practices back in your hometowns. Uh, you're going to have somebody that 
you've got a great mm-hmm. relationship with already uh, that you trust and, and know what their strengths are that you'll be able to call or teleconference with and say, hey, I've got this going on. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a, an added bonus, I would think, of such a small class. It, it, yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting, interesting, Mary Catherine, because a lot of students get married in medical school. Yeah. Not only do they bond, they really bond. <laughs> so I would be surprised if, if as this class have gone through that somebody in these classes will not get married. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. You'll see a lot of married couples and they meet in medical school and obviously they have the same type of drive and background and personality and career goals and, and medical school marriages are very common. Mm-hmm. But then one community loses their small yeah. town doctor. <laughs> That's not <laughs> ideal. Get them both at the same time. <laughs> I thought the, the, it was interesting, uh, the, the application process to even get in, that uh, students or each applicant is required to talk to local mayors and Farm Bureau people. I think I'm actually quoting you in an article mm-hmm. I found. Uh, are those kind of interviews important when you decide to actually let someone in the program, how they perform with a local mayor or, or you know, a small town person? The, the different interview process is a unique part of our program. The students here in the room have to be accepted to the traditional IU School of Medicine, the same academic requirements and so forth like that. So they're all outstanding students. But we're looking for special people and rurality, if that is even a, a correct word. How will they function in a small town? And we really modeled our program uh, after the University of Illinois program has been around for almost 30 years. And it's been very successful. And when they interviewed around that table, as you say, the small town banker, the high school principal, the farm bureau agent, um, that's who's going to interview and decide if you get on to medical school or not. And they know the needs of that community and kind of get a feel. Their, their, their interview process is part of the whole thing, trying to get a feel for does that person really the kind of person would want to come and accept those challenges, um, isolation, many things you've, you, you struggle with in rural areas. Are they really that type of a person we'd want to have to come to our community? And it's been a successful way, but the, the townspeople enjoy that. The students enjoy that. Um, rather than getting interviewed by an academic, mm-hmm. you know, these are real people who have spent their lives there, maybe two or three generations, have a real investment in that community, and they really want it to grow and succeed. And do they see this person as that person who's going to help us do that? So it's really a, a nice interchange. I would think that would create such a sense of personal ownership and investment on the part of the community too. I mean I would imagine and correct me if I'm wrong um, or feel free to expand on this but that there are people in your hometowns kind of tap, tap, tapping their feet waiting for you to get through medical school and get back there. Have you had that experience yet? Um, not particularly. I mean – I get I it at every Sunday night yeah. church service. <laughs> yeah. I bet. He's more local. Actually, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> the mean age of our congregation is probably 65. <laughs> yeah. We need you, man. Yeah. Hurry up. <laughs> we can't wait very long. <laughs> well, do you come to find that most students stay in Indiana or stay local? Do they want to go back to where they grew up? Well, if you take the primary care scholarship, you have to stay. There's mm. big fees if because I'm getting loan money from them or getting all my money from the Indiana State. So, and But that's what I wanted to do anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. This is this program's kind of in the beginning, so I don't know if there's any, like, real data yet on if people are staying. But yeah, what, where is your, What's your placement numbers look like? Well, as again, we're just in our third year of the whole – and uh, so actually our first class is now – We'll be becoming third-year medical students this summer. So um, we won't have any hard data for you, but they are, they're all Indiana residents. They, that's how we interviewed them, and, and I think you're going to see you know, a spouse issue could come up and, mm-hmm. or a family issue or a, a family emergency that may have to draw you to another state. But, um, but we're pretty solid that they're here to stay. So, Doug, have you been eyeballing all these guys and saying, hey, Clinton's a nice place? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, as Julia mentioned, she's going to be rotating up through Clinton and we're hoping to woo her. Um, <laughs> I thought there might be our, some um, Just as a point of interest, in our community, we have like six to eight docs that are active staff and they're 50-plus years old. We have one who's 72 who works 12-hour days. And there will come a point in time when, as Jim mentioned, you know, you lose one physician, that's economic as well as patient care uh, needs. In our community, we serve both Vermilion and Park County. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely need primary care docs. What, is, what are some numbers on the shortage, uh, shortage in Indiana at least? And is there any chance that that shortage will be filled, you know, in the next 10, 20 years? We won't fill that shortage. With the program we have now, it's not, not large enough. 
Um, the federal government and the state both do studies to determine medically underserved areas and you actually get a number and you can look at maps mm-hmm. of those and, and those those maps help determine if you can put a community health center there if you qualify for that and again for if you qualify for loan repayment are you going to an underserved area so those maps are out there um, we won't come close with the graduates we're, we're putting out now um, we're at the tip of the iceberg and we need all the healthcare professionals as we mentioned but we're starting and ideally in Terre Haute if all continues to go well is uh, uh, we could have 48 rural students there at one time if it continues to grow and I think it will. With, with students like this as mentors mm-hmm. and as role models, when students come to look at the program, they, they say, I want to be like them. And so we're just starting that process where now we have people three years in and as they progress through residency and practice, I trained in Terre Haute. I was part of that rural program. Students will go spend time with them and it will be that role modeling, which is so important in medicine, mm-hmm. so important to, to have that person that, that you can kind of watch and realize they can have a successful career, have a family and be very fulfilling for them. They need that role model to follow, and we're developing those. And you've been that role model for all these folks. So thank you so much for sharing your experience and for all the energy and uh, that you've put into developing this program. It's just what a, what a great thing for the state of Indiana. I'm just one among many. There, there are many, many contribute to that, and we're just one among many. Well, thank you. Uh, in, the, in about 30 seconds here we have left, is this, do you see this as kind of the culmination of your career? Do you, is this a good legacy you feel like you're going to leave behind? Well, you know, country doctors don't <laughs> retire very early, as, <laughs> as uh, Doug kind of mentioned there. So um, I'm happy. I'm healthy. I don't, I'm, uh, but this is a great opportunity to have students with you because they keep you sharp. Mm-hmm. You know, you bring a student on board, they're going to ask you a question. You have to have an answer. It's not just because this is the way we do it, but, you know, you may have to talk back down to some physiology, biochemistry, and anatomy, and, and it's a great learning experience for that physician also. They will challenge you. So it's really a win-win to have a student there. And my experience has been when we bring students to our office, the patients really enjoy that. And the patients also get a perception that this must be a good clinic. They are teaching. Mm-hmm. And so we always try to tell you know people, should I have a student? Yes, you should take a student to your office. Your patients will enjoy that. They like to tell their stories. Um, and, it, and it raises the level, to my opinion, of the professionality of your office. If you're good enough to teach, mm-hmm. then you have something going on special. So, uh, so it's a practice builder. Well, I hate to cut you off. Uh, thank you so much for coming to the studio. Thank, thank you, you. Uh, Jim, thank Doug, you. Julie, and John for making the trip. Thank you, as always, to Mary Catherine. Daniel, it's fun having you with me today. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Please tune in next week when we have Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom. She will join us in the studio. That's the same place, same time next week. Thanks for listening. This has been Noon Edition on WFIU. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.